This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Welcome, Talk Catholic, the website.com, your host, Tim Kilcoyne. No agendas here, just the straight and narrow, through Mary to Jesus, the Catholic faith proclaimed and preserved. Hope to see you here every week. TalkCatholic.com, Christmas time, Tim Kilcoin, just coming up for air. <laughs> well, not quite, it's a few weeks now, but I went through it. A vicious journey of sickness. Food poisoning, back to back. That'll take the digestive system for a ride. And don't you think I wasn't praying to St. Timothy, who is absolutely our saint for stomach disorders? And let's not forget uh, the poisoning or attempted poisoning of St. Benedict and St. Paul, of course, being bit by a snake on the island of Malta. And always St. Luke, the physician. And in fact, I can't remember a time where I was in more pain than a ruptured appendix at the age of 12, I believe. It was vicious. And I highlight this at Christmas time for a few reasons. First of all, may we pray for all those who are sick, especially at this time of the year. And I do so in highlighting my story as an opportunity to ponder the greater role that you may be able to play for us in that nursing home or shut in at home, perhaps living by your lonesome, maybe somebody's coming to visit and checking in on you, maybe someone's not. And in the midst of that, when you get sickness on top, it's pretty overwhelming and yet pretty uplifting, or can be. This, a few shows back, I did a little bit of a piece on the power of intercession and how the Lord is looking for select souls who, in their depravity, are able to offer up all the difficulty, all the sickness, all the pain. I literally found myself on one particular arduous night just saying to the Father, help me to grow through this, Lord, spiritually. I'm not good at this. (laughs) Who is in the midst of real, real pain? How can I go to the next level? Because I have some serious prayer intentions that I'd like to offer up through this sickness for three very special people. Two of them very close to me. And in all three cases, I've been praying for a great miracle, a great miracle by the precious blood of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if it be in the Father's will, all through Our Lady Mystical Rose. And I'm not going to give you the final box score just yet, but I can say, I can say with a little bit of joy. The Holy Spirit has been at work, and I'll keep you updated. But nevertheless, this is exactly that role of atonement and reparation that the Father is looking for, maybe to stay his hand of divine justice upon us in light of 
65 million abortions or prayer being thrown out of the public school in way back in 1962. Maybe that was the domino. Everything that got rolling only went downhill from there. There's a lot that we do deserve in terms of punishment. And Our Lady has been consistent all throughout the apparitions. Repent, repent, repent. This is the greatest gift you can do for yourself and therefore for others and mostly for God at Christmas time. So I share that first and foremost. And in that spirit of reparation and atonement, I highlight two particular heroes of our faith at Christmas time that we should truly take to prayer. I'm sure you've heard of the, the gauntlet coming down on Bishop Strickland in the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. And this kind of on the heels not too long ago of the laicization of the greatest priest of, in my lifetime, in my opinion, and I had done a show just prior to that kiboshing, Father Frank Pavone, who is a priest, by the way, a, a priest forever after Melchizedek, technically stripped of his priestly duties for now, on appeal, no doubt, to the Holy Father or the next Holy Father. But Father Pavone is deeply at peace, and there is a great video called Pavone Speaks, conducted by Taylor Marshall a few weeks back. And let's not forget, by the way, perhaps the greatest cardinal in my lifetime, Cardinal Burke being stripped of his very home. And is very significant, I think, uh, that these three men were experiencing the same kind of power over. I remember a theology book from my graduate days at a most liberal institute of theology, I might add. It was talking exactly about the concept of power with versus power over. And we were supposed to be about power with, empowerment. That's the Holy Spirit. Power over hoarding power, wanting everybody to toe the line and be a cookie cutter of themselves. Not. That's not Catholic. That's not reasonable. What about dialoguing and accompanying one's journey? And I find it so ironic that they are now the very ones who are guilty of what they were espousing. Power over was supposed to be condemned from a liberal perspective. And yet, the non-Catholic Sanhedrin over in Rome at the Synod, who just uh, orchestrated that facade, they're not dialoguing with the Bishop Stricklands and the Cardinal Saraz, the Father Frank Pavones, or dare we forget, Father James Altman, uh, whatsoever. They don't want to hear them. Not to mention the Cardinal Muellers, the Bishop Athanasius Schneiders, the Cardinal Burks, and there's more than a few. We wish there were more. And I would argue, human nature being what it is, there are many more. They won't speak up, and especially now, after what just happened to Bishop Strickland, which was the purpose of it all. But they don't want to hear those other voices. Hmm, sounds almost like the political nonsense that we have on our hands today. We're not supposed to dialogue with the other side. In fact, Father Altman was pretty much given the axe when he uh, gave the sermon about the incompatibility of voting Democrat and being a Catholic. Whether you agree or disagree with that statement, I think he has the freedom to say it, or at least he did in the America I grew up in and the church I grew up in that respected classical liberalism and freedom of speech. So this is ultra hypocrisy at its maximum degree in what they did, most especially to Father Frank Pavone, and not much different in the case of Bishop Strickland. He was critical of the Synod. How dare he? Oh, wow. Critical remarks regarding the Synod. Remarks that were echoing Cardinal Pell. Has anybody read his book, Prison Journal, 
May we truly keep Cardinal Pell in your Christmas prayers, for he was putting everything in the sunshine, and it makes one wonder about the timing of his death relative to the release of his book. Makes one ponder the passing of Pope John Paul I. Sorry, but things to at least ponder. In the manner in which Father Frank Pavone and Bishop Strickland were uh, dealt with, we're talking about heroic men of God with a virtually flawless performance. And it should be noted regarding Father Pavone that Father had had several get-togethers with the Holy Father, Pope Francis, and on one occasion Pope Francis had just celebrated with joy the great work he has been doing with Rachel's Vineyard, heading it up. So there again makes you kind of wonder about the people around Pope Francis as well who might be doing all the sneaky conniving work. Under the papal radar? Please, don't put halos on horns. Whoever these bad apples were, they were out to get holy men. Why? Because power brokers don't like other power brokers. So this is kind of what we've been dealing with relative to the divide in the church, the deep church versus the authentic church, the masquerading church versus the mystical body of Christ. There is a difference. And how you are treated pretty much will tell you which church is at work. Please pray, truly, for Father Frank Pavone, Colonel Burke, and Bishop Strickland. For I have no doubt Colonel Pell has seen his reward. They are men of God in need of our prayer, our intercession. And I think it was more than uh, significant that both of them received their pink slips on November 9th. Interesting, which is a feast of the St. John Lateran Basilica in Rome, gee, I wonder whether there was a little coincidence there that it was coming from the church in Rome on the same day. Of course, we know there are no coincidences. May we take a very different spiritual take and discernment on all of this. This also happened on the Feast of St. Benignus, a true apostolic successor of St. Patrick, a wonderful successor, and a great movie, St. Patrick, the legend, Malcolm McDowell, Patrick Bergen, excellent movie, which points to the canonical concept of passing on faithfully. In the movie, I remember St. Patrick complimenting Benignus that when Patrick would be leaving, and making his departure, Benignus would be his successor. And it was precisely because he wasn't like them, referring to the bureaucrats in England. Cardinals and bishops living in palaces. Who wanted to put an end to all of Patrick's good work. You know, the down and dirty work amongst God's people. Patrick was just having way too much success for these gentlemen. And Benignus was just a simple kind of guy. Fisherman-like. Most faithful and a true loving disciple of our Lord, first and foremost, and St. Patrick, his successor. Say, so may we pray to St. Benignus at Christmas time for Father Pavone, Colonel Burke, and Bishop Strickland. And let's not forget Bishop Athanasius Schneider, who's probably hanging on the next cliff. Indeed, pray for apostolic succession to be held up in great honor by all leaders in the church who consider themselves in that line of St. Peter and St. Paul and all the first apostles and all other apostolic successors who did their job through the ages passing on the unchanging deposit of the Catholic faith. All truth trickles down through that line from age to age, Christmas to Christmas. And on that, let's have a quick little Christmas story, and then we'll get back to our book review, Who Am I to Judge, with Professor Edward Sree. And perhaps 
this little story is ever apropos to the real angst, hatred, ridicule of our Jewish brothers and sisters these days? Or has it been through all, all the days since our Lord walked on this earth? I read, A Christmas Surprise by Len Fusener, The Angel's Little Instruction Book. Due to my conservative Jewish background, I did not believe in angels. That is, not until Christmas Eve of 1979, when an angel brought unexpected joy to my home. As often happens in divorce, my 5- and 11-year-old daughters not only lost the security of an intact family, but they tearfully left behind neighborhood friends, a familiar school, and the comfortable amenities of a large house, all replaced by a cramped two-bedroom apartment in a poorer part of town. I arranged to take my vacation during their winter school holiday, and we made plans for the week, cookie baking, movie matinees, arts and crafts, games, a pizza night, and evening car rides to view neighborhood holiday lights and lawn displays. The anticipation was working its magic, and my daughter's spirits seemed to brighten. The week before the school break, however, devastating news of multiple family disasters came in faster than we could process the pain, clouding our vacation plans. By Christmas Eve, gloom enveloped our apartment. An afternoon movie did little to improve our mood. Upon returning to our apartment, we were astonished to see a majestic six-foot Christmas tree, a glitter with metallic icicle strands, propped against our front door. In mute wonder, we looked back and forth from the tree to each other and around the deserted street. Excitement built, and the girls begged to keep the orphaned tree. Maybe it's for us, insisted the older. Yeah, echoed the younger. I bet an angel brought it to us. I laughed out loud at the idea of an angel bringing a Christmas tree to a Jewish family. Nevertheless, I was caught up in their newfound elation, and I pronounced the tree ours. We dragged it inside and headed out to the only supermarket in our small town open that late on Christmas Eve. With holiday merchandise marked down to half price, I gave a nod of approval to a tree stand, two boxes of multicolored balls, a package of six Santa figurines, a 100-foot string of miniature lights, and one lone paper angel. Back home, we maneuvered our tree into a place of honor in our tiny living room. The girls snipped and glued and painted paper decorations. With an exhilaration that had been absent for months, we strung the lights, placed the paper angel on top, and festooned the tree with store-bought and homemade ornaments. Finally, with a girl snuggled in each of my arms, we sat in semi-darkness, mesmerized by twinkling Christmas tree lights. Smiles and contented sighs proclaimed the end of our long emotional crises. There was joy in our new home. I sat in thankful amazement that a Christmas tree had the power to uplift Jewish spirits. My five-year-old whispered softly, Do you really think an angel brought us this tree? At that moment, I did not know the tree and its deliverer would forever remain a mystery. All I could do was answer honestly from my heart, Yes, I whispered, holding them closer. I'm sure of it. Our vacation was a resounding success. Fun, laughter, and the nightly wonder of our flickering tree. By New Year's Day, our spirits were healed, and we were ready to face the challenges ahead, strengthened by the bond of our shared belief in angels and magical Christmas trees. That winter vacation became an annual family tradition, complete with a Jewish angel tree in remembrance of our heaven-sent gift. For 17 more years, we held our breath and felt the familiar tingles up our arms when the original paper angel was placed atop each tree. Now my adult daughters have their own homes. There are no more luxurious vacation days spent together. There are no more Jewish angel trees. But each Christmas Eve, they phone to sigh and reminisce about our angel and the special childhood memories intertwined 
in the branches of a six-foot tree. I don't hide my little teardrops. What a beautiful little story. May we take this particular story to our modern-day neighbors who may be very different than ourselves and try to bring that light into their lives. However we do it, ladies and gentlemen, at a time that is so critical to do it. Difference, indeed, is our brother and sister, and we need to bring them together. At Christmas time, when we come back, our book review with Professor Edward Sree, Who Am I to Judge? This is WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. I used to listen to this as a little boy, the Irish tenor John Gary, the Christmas album. Do you hear what I hear? Okay, so Professor Sri is entitling the chapter Law and Happiness and good reason for it because good laws lead to happiness. The end that we all seek is one's true happiness. And what we have to be on guard about is that false happiness that comes from a very different spirit, not the Holy Spirit. And in the following excerpts that I'm going to read, he draws a little bit on the Adam and Eve story and how the devil, the serpent, was trying to tempt them because both of them were truly duped into buying the lies of the evil one in trying to paint 
our Lord as some ogre, mean lawgiver. You know, the depiction that's on the mass media airwaves every single day, night, and afternoon, <laughs> depicting family life where the patriarchy and the matriarchy is mocked and always out of touch with the way we do things now, all spoken with an insolence towards the nuclear family. This all started kind of a long time ago, ladies and gentlemen. You know, he doesn't have your best interests at heart in telling you that you can't eat of all of the trees in the garden. And this is classic gaslighting of God. He dares to put a moral prohibition on you. The evil one used to say that God just didn't want you to have full knowledge. Now the moral lawgivers are just painted as racist. That's always a comfortable, easy term to use for just about everything that you don't like. This is nothing but diabolical stuff that gets good people to bite the apple, if not simply out of fear of the scorn and ridicule that might come your way. Professor Sri says, you see, the moral law is like God's instruction manual for our lives. God is the divine manufacturer. He made us and knows how we work. He knows that certain actions will lead us to our happiness, while other acts will lead us to frustration and emptiness for ourselves and others. As Pope St. John Paul II once said, God, who alone is good, knows perfectly what is good for man, and by virtue of his very love proposes this good to man in the commandments. The moral law thus is the pathway to our end, to our happiness. He continues on, The devil is not simply trying to get Adam and Eve to break a rule. He is trying to get them to break a relationship. At its root, the first sin involves Adam and Eve questioning God's goodness. As the Catechism explains, man tempted by the devil let his trust in his creator die in his heart and abusing his freedom disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of. All subsequent sin would be disobedience towards God and lack of trust in his goodness. Catechism 397. The fall of Adam and Eve is the story of all humanity, but especially of our modern age. As he did with our first parents, the devil causes us to doubt that there is a God who loves us so much that he reveals a moral law for our benefit. Deep in the hearts of many modern men and women is sown the serpent's doubt. Did God really say dot dot dot? Question mark. This is the tragedy of moral relativism. It causes us to see the moral law as an obstacle standing in the way of what we want to do, instead of something that helps us discover authentic happiness. In a relativistic culture, we doubt that God's law is really a trustworthy pathway to happiness and wisdom for navigating through the challenges of life. Like Adam and Eve, we think we know better, but we cannot divorce God's law from his love. Thus, when we reject God's moral law for our own preferences, we are ultimately rejecting the Father's loving care for us. So Professor Edward Sree just gave us an intro course on Psychology 101, namely, deny, deflect, and enable. <laughs> this is the classic strategy of the guilty. We see how the blame game goes all the way around. Eve is blaming the serpent. Adam is blaming Eve. And if there were kids around already, they'd get some blame too. And ultimately, the messenger gets crucified. That's exactly the played out scenario of every sin imaginable. And it all started right there in the garden. Nothing new to this story, but boy does the merry go round and round and round until we get it right. There is something called repentance, giving it up, the surrender of the ego, total surrender, acknowledgement that you did wrong. You really did. And you need to amend your ways and correct them to get back on the path to your true happiness and stop gaslighting 
the messenger, the innocent one, who is just trying to reach out for your best interests at heart? It is called love. Eternally? Why do we do this over and over and over in family life? <laughs> but we've got the playbook, and Professor Sri, God bless him for just putting it in very simple terms. It has so much to do with sin, which then creates the scenario where the good guy or gal has to be blamed and pinned with the guilt when in fact they truly are innocent. And thus the reason for what we call in culture the rule of law. It's critical to have a rule of law objective for all in the secular civil realm, not to mention the divine and moral realm. Laws are good or can be and should be. That's why we've got to make sure we got good legislators who understand God's wisdom, which was the foundation of this very country, the Judeo-Christian ethos, which is exactly under assault right now. So we've got to take a look at who's making our laws if we want to get back on a track to our good end. And I say that from a political standpoint as much as a spiritual standpoint, because it's all intertwined. And thus, I support the resurgence of Christendom. A good reason why Taylor Marshall was thinking about the presidency. He's dead serious about reviving what is an age-old concept of Catholic social justice, the intertwining of the sacred and the secular. It is the only way it can work well. And the Founding Fathers may have provided for no establishment of any one religion, no doubt good, good thinking, for a diverse free population. But they did not anticipate no religion, no religious thinking amongst those who make the laws. And that's where we're at right now with practical atheism, at least on the part of civil authorities. The separation of church and state is not in the founding documents. Thomas Jefferson might have had his personal opinions, but like many opinions of our current pope, it's still not constitutional thinking or magisterial teaching, which is all that we will go on right here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. Do you hear what I hear? Indeed. Be Christmas to someone this week. God bless. Let your light shine. That is what it's all about here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. But we need to hear your story. You want your voice to be his voice. That is making the faith known to others. Please, my number is 877-625-3727. Tim Kilcoyne, TalkCatholic.com. St. Mother Teresa told us, your ministry is your work right where you are. Grab on to this microphone. God bless. <laughs>